listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good evening and welcome to the October 12th edition of Eye on the Triangle. The time is 7.01 and I'm your host, John Boyer. On tonight's program, we have all your favorite segments on the way, but we begin with Chris and a very important interview. Eye on the Triangle's VIP. Talking to people that matter. I'm joined here in the studio this afternoon with the Libertarian candidates running for the Senate seat currently held by Richard Burr. Can you introduce yourself, please? Yes. Hi, Chris. I'm Mike Beitler. I am the Libertarian candidate running against Richard Burr. Can you briefly talk about libertarianism and um, how it differs from the traditional Republican and Democratic Party? Yeah, the easiest way to do that, Chris, is um, to think in terms of my father was a Republican, so I think I picked up some of the fiscal conservative ideas from him. My mother was a a Democrat, so I I picked up the social liberal stances from her. And and libertarianism is really a combination of the fiscal liberal and the social – I'm sorry, the, the, the fiscal conservative and the social liberal combination. Now, what exactly does it mean to be a libertarian? I think what it means is, as as a fiscal conservative, it means you need to balance your budget at the federal level, just like we do in our households. And then on social issues, our typical tagline would be, you have the right to do whatever you want to do, comma, as long as you do not infringe on the rights of others. Now, I guess that can be kind of scary, because when you, <laughs> well, when you think about like, oh, I can do whatever I want, I'm going to have 45 guns and a landmine in my front yard, um, <laughs> what what is the government's role in a libertarian system? Yeah, great question. The The role as we see it is to protect individual rights. So if that's all they're charged with doing, that means we can have a much smaller government because they're not going to be micromanaging a lot of the areas of our life that they're involved in now. Now, um, in libertarianism, there is also the uh, fiscal conservatism part, and a lot of that involves cutting a lot of social programs that we all have now. Please talk a little about how you would like or how you envision a government in in your mind. Well, what I think I bring to the table in this election, Chris, is I started my career as a CPA, so I know the value of doing audits. I think we need to do independent audits of all the programs and agencies before we talk in terms of what we're going to cut. I know even some of my libertarian friends have said cut across the board 4%, 5%, but then that cuts out programs that are actually working well. So I think we need to do the step one has to be the audits and then you decide what you're going to cut after that. So now what kind of programs do you see as ones that are uh, failing? Well, actually, I see a lot of them that are failing because um, the government by its nature, if you think about it, they don't have to be efficient. In fact, if they're inefficient, they can actually get more money the next year, which is a serious concern for taxpayers. So uh, which ones would you cut first? I I have a couple of... Things I would suspect, I mean, that like the Department of Education isn't educating anybody. That would be one to consider. But we, we could also look at military spending as well. I, I'm, the, I'm the anti-war candidate in this, in this uh, campaign. And I think we can certainly get out of Afghanistan, not just save money, but save lives as well. Now, as a student, of course, very concerned about education. When you say that you would cut the, um, the education programs, how would you restructure it? Or would you restructure it to make it so that kids can learn? Well, at at several different levels, Chris, if you think about um, what we've done in education, if if we think about the secondary education for now, um, well, secondary and primary, um, the the government is almost running a a near monopoly. So we don't like the idea of a a monopoly or a near monopoly 
in, in the private sector, but somehow in education it would work. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So what we need to do is think in terms of what we have in the computer industry. You have a lot of entrepreneurial types coming up with new ideas and new new products, new services, but also driving down the costs at the same time. We need to be able to do that in education as well. So that would require students to perhaps pay tuition? Well, possibly, but but again, I think you would have different options. I, I think you could have options where uh, – well, I, I teach at UNC uh, Greensboro in, in the business school, and some of my students do really well in big classes. works just fine for them. You know, they, there could be one type of school for them. But then there are other students that need hands-on kinds of things, uh, something completely different from the classroom. They just don't do well in that auditory um, lecture kind of a uh, format. All right. Well, um, let's continue kind of talking about education for a minute. You say you teach at UNC Greensboro. What kind of uh, educational upbringing have you had? Um, can you talk a little about like your, your childhood and your family upbringing? Yeah, I, I I went through public schools and um, was probably about a C plus student. wasn't really a great student. And I <laughs> see you smiling, Chris. You can you can relate to that. So um, I don't think I, I really started to understand the value of education until I got older. You know, after um, you know I went through uh, the public school system, I, I went to a community college, and I think I got a, a decent education there. And then I went on to a university after that. Finished up with a four-year degree in, in finance. So uh, my, my blue-collar dad thought that that was better than going into psychology, which I had originally thought about. And then, um, see, about 12 years later, I went back and got my master's degree in psychology, which is something I wanted to do in the first place. It's actually applied psychology, not clinical. And then went on to get my doctorate in leadership development before going into teaching at UNCG. How do you um, feel that education shaped your political ideologies? Who do you feel inspired by? Who do you identify with? That's a really good question, Chris, because I think I can pick somebody from each of the major parties. I, I like the the leaders that had a vision, a really clear vision, even if it wasn't one I necessarily agreed with. I think it, it's what you need to, to pull a country together and get them pulling in the same direction. So, so I think about John Kennedy, the Democrat. Ronald Reagan, the Republican, don't necessarily agree with all of their of their um, beliefs, but but I think that the leaders that have the visions are, are, are the ones that bring the country together as a whole instead of this, this polarized kind of thing we have now. Now, um, speaking about polarization and how we do have this two party system, how important do you feel that having a third party's voice in a race like the North Carolina Senate race is to the race itself? I think it really is critical at this point, Chris. Uh, somebody asked me, why did you decide to run? And I thought, well, I'll start off with the wise guy answer. And, and that was, I needed somebody to vote for. Because I just hear Richard Burr giving us the same old, it, 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 without even looking at his voting record. You know, he'll tell you that he's a fiscal conservative, even though he's done all these fiscally liberal things. And then on the other side, Elaine Marshall is supposed to be the traditional Democrat. But she appears to be pro-war. She was supportive of, you know, raising the troop levels in Afghanistan along with Obama. So I, I think you have two people who are just following the party line. And I don't think, Chris, most people live on the far left or the far right. They live in the middle. How does this third party uh, split the other two parties when it comes down to Election Day? Or do you feel like it splits the party or the voting? Yeah, it's a good question because, because I think what you're asking is you'll hear – 
arguments about, you know, voting for the lesser of the two evils. And uh, but, but I think what, what that does is it doesn't recognize that the voter owns the vote. The parties don't own the vote. And, and I think that third party option is necessary because there are people and I meet a lot of them who say, yes, you should balance the budget. And if that makes me a fiscal conservative and I'm a fiscal conservative. And yes, on the social issues, you should allow people to do what they want to do as long as they're not infringing on the rights of others. And if that makes me a social liberal, I guess I'm that too. And then, and they end up basically saying, okay, Beitler, I hear what you're saying. Maybe I am a libertarian after all. So even if it's a small L instead of a big L, I think, I think most North Carolinians do think as libertarians. With that libertarian mindset, what issues do you feel like are most important to you and your fellow candidates in this election? Well, actually, the, the one thing that all three of us agree on is, is jobs in the economy is, is number one. There are pockets of unemployment around North Carolina in double digits, and that's unacceptable. But where we differ is how do you create the jobs? For me, it doesn't make sense for the government to create jobs because you have to take the money from the private sector to put it in the public sector, so there's no net increase in jobs because you're losing them on the, on the private sector side. For me, you have to give the incentives to small businesses. Small businesses, we all know, are it's the engine. It's the engine of innovation and job creation. Uh, big businesses, they're pretty much now involved in all kind of cronyism with big government. So instead of creating new jobs, they're just looking for pet taxpayer money. So small businesses are the answer for the job growth. Now, how do you suggest that um, you can facilitate that growth well, in small jobs? You know, the way you can facilitate that is to give the small businesses the tax breaks. And then also you have to think about the regulatory burden on small businesses is huge. So as I said, I'm a business professor, but I also go out into the business community as a, a consultant. And And small businesses tell me the biggest problem they have right now is they're not sure – what new regulations are going to come up next. So they're hesitant to buy, to, to start hiring people and growing the business because they don't know if the goalposts are going to be moved. They don't know what, what the game rules actually are. So there's this hesitation because of all the, un, you know, this unclear kind of expectations. So what would you propose? I think we have to have a moratorium on regulations for small businesses and just tell them, okay, for two years, no new regs. The goalposts are where they're going to stay. The sidelines are where they're going to be. And, and I think they would move forward because entrepreneurial types can figure out real, real quickly, okay, what are the rules of the game and, and how can I do well at this? There was a debate the other night and I heard you didn't get to go. Right. right. Um, now, how does that – how do you feel about not being invited to these debates and how do you feel about not being able to voice how you feel as a candidate? Well, to be real honest, Chris, my first feeling, I think like anybody else, when there's a snub, you know, you think, ouch, that hurt. You know, I've been campaigning for a year and I get snubbed. But it was interesting because I felt like I was being treated unfairly. But then lots of North Carolinians were saying, wait a minute, this is an outrage. He's on the ballot, but we're not allowed to hear what he has to say. It's not like we're a write-in candidate or something out on the fringe. We're actually on the ballot. So it's actually gotten this a lot of radio time and TV time where hosts want to come on and just say, let's talk about this. You know, how do you feel? Do you think other North Carolinians feel the same way? And, and I think so. We, we did. Uh, now, in, in all fairness, I got to tell you, you know, we, we did come on uh, News 14 right after the debate last night. So 
Tim Boyum and the folks at News 14 said, you know, we want you to come in and watch the debates with us and, and then we'll ask you the questions immediately after the debate. So there is fairness out there. I guess in that way, you, you the Libertarians are on the ballot. And I think it, it can be attributed to uh, Mike Munger's uh, run for governor in 2008. Now, what is the future of the Libertarian Party in North Carolina? I think that polls said you were at about 10%. We d- we did, Chris. We, we th- there was a televised debate in June uh, that the, the the NC Bar Association did Wilmington, correct? In, in Wilmington, exactly. Yeah, and uh, we we did well in that. As you were saying, we shot up to ten percent in the polls. We were actually at a three way tie among the independent voters, and it's probably the reason there was some pressure from the two party systems to bump us last night because they don't want us back into double digits again. But but you mentioned Mike Munger. You know, we we got on the ballot by raising about a hundred thousand signatures, which is a as a Herculean task. Mike Munger kept us on the ballot, so I feel like you know I'm I'm doing the light lifting now. They did the heavy lifting already, because because I can be like the other candidates now and just go out there and campaign. I don't have to worry about getting on the ballot and staying on the ballot. Now, how long are you and your party protected from being kicked off the ballot? Yeah, good question, because in 2012, and I, I sincerely hope Mike Munger will run again, but, but he'll have to get at least the 2%, which I think he'll do this time fairly easily. But but the rule is you have to get at least 1% in the national election or 2% in the gubernatorial election to stay on. No, I know this is like a tough question. Okay, <laughs> bring, it on, I, bring it on. But I looked up your voting record. Um, yeah. On, and it said you voted in the 2009 primary. Right. Um, and you were not um, on the ballot before. Right. Now, since you haven't really voted much, how important do you feel voting is? And what would you say to people who don't vote? Well, I think the issue, and I think you're bringing up a good issue, because about half the people don't vote, even in the major elections. So the turnout this time may be even worse because there's not a lot of interest after things kind of went downhill the last two years. But but I really got to a point in my, my life, Chris, where I said, you know, either I'm not going to vote at all because the candidates that they're throwing at us are awful, or I'm going to jump in with both feet, and I'm happy to say I decide to do the latter. But but I can I can understand why people are saying, especially if something like last night, when, when, when a third-party candidate can't even get into the debate, even though they're on the ballot, I, there's, it's understandable why there are people who are frustrated and people are dropping out of the system altogether. I think, Chris, the most important thing for your listeners to think about is um, not not voting for a party and not voting for the lesser of two evils, but especially for young voters. You know, what what are the two big parties doing? The both, both of these parties are just giving us more and more government, it's more and more costly, and, and we're just kicking the can down the road expecting the younger generation to pay for all these bills. I think it's time for young voters especially not to vote for big government Democrats or big government Republicans. I think the libertarians are more in line, especially with the young people today. Now, how have you tried to get out the word about your candidacy to young folks or to most folks? Because I'm sure when you like walk down the street and you're like, oh, I'm the libertarian guy. I'm sure they're like, oh, what? <laughs> right. Right. How have you tried to fight against the, the misinformation people have got? That's, yeah, it, it is. There is a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of stereotypes and so forth that we have to wade through and the two big parties, of course, keep reinforcing the stereotypes every chance they can. But but I do think it, it's a matter of we do have really good volunteers this time. We have people on the campuses promoting our message. 
I think it's just a matter of time, you know, to where, you know, a really viable third-party option. Now, what do you see the future of libertarianism being? Or do you feel like there's more than just libertarians on the horizon? What other choices should voters in North Carolina and the country have they don't have now? Well, this might sound like a surprise, but uh, I think it's been extremely difficult for the libertarians to get on the ballot. And I think North Carolina is the next the worst. I think Oklahoma's worse for getting on the ballot. But um, I, w- I would like to see the Green Party push to to get um, onto the ballot. I don't agree with everything the Green Party has to say, but they certainly have a voice that needs to be heard. And and I, and again, I don't think um, part of the argument for keeping us out of the debate was, well, it'll cause voter confusion, which it makes it sound like North Carolinians are a bunch of idiots. They can't juggle three opinions at one time, which I think is just silly. We're not talking about 17 parties with, you know, four members or something like that per party. But we're talking about thousands of people registered and and, 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 and having some kind of ballot access makes sense. But 100,000 is just crazy. It's almost impossible now for the Green Party to get on. When you walk up to someone and um, you talk to them for a while about uh, your candidacy, what is the one thing that you try and press on them as much as possible? I really try to tell uh, people to go ahead and go to the websites of the candidates and actually read what they have to say. And, and I think we've done a really good job with our website. It's just beitlerforussenate.org. We spell out all the issues there. We have videos on the different issues. And, and I think that just just to get – I think everybody needs to educate themselves about what the candidates actually stand for. And don't think about the stereotypes that the, you know, that the Republicans want smaller government and never do it or that the Democrats want to end war seem to start more than they actually end. So I think get get past all the stereotypes, you know, go to the websites and we, we, all, we all need to educate ourselves on what the candidates are actually saying. Well, Dr. Byler, thank you so much for coming in this afternoon and taking some time out of your busy day. Well, a pleasure, Chris. Thanks. Viewpoint on Eye on the Triangle. Evan's opinions on the latest news. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, student media, or NCSU. Tyler Clementi was a mild-mannered 18-year-old freshman and accomplished violinist at Rutgers University who happened to be gay. After his roommate secretly streamed a sexual encounter between him and another male student over the Internet on two separate occasions, Tyler threw himself over the railing of the George Washington Bridge. I can't begin to fathom how he felt or what he was thinking as as his body plummeted towards the surface of the Hudson River. However, I can imagine how his dignity and self-worth were systematically stripped from him by a lifetime of encounters with willfully ignorant and spiteful individuals like his roommate. Given the spate of suicides amongst gay youth that has dominated the national news cycle as of late, it should come as no surprise that Tyler's suicide is only one of many. A 2009 National School Climate Survey of 7,261 middle and high school students found that 9 out of 10 gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender students experienced harassment at school. Penn State University released an equally disturbing study, finding that the third leading cause of death amongst youth, regardless of sexual orientation, is suicide. Gay youth constitute 30% of those suicides and are four times more likely to attempt it. We're in the midst of an epidemic. 
Like any outbreak, the rate of suicide amongst gay youth will not drop without a directed fight against its causes, yet the actions of lobbyists and activists from Washington, D.C. to the brickyard here at NC State have been scattershot at best. We can spray paint parts of our campus with supportive slogans, hand out colorful T-shirts in support of diversity, write letters to the editor, even donate money to lobbies and don their trendy bumper stickers and armbands, but that is simply not enough. While these displays are important outlets for an already vocal portion of the gay community, they do nothing for those that are voiceless and afraid. Activism, or taking direct action to further a political purpose, is all too often confused with advocacy, or providing outreach and a network of support to those that desperately need it. Being loud, proud, and visible is critical in the fight for equality, but it is not proactive in ameliorating the shame and humiliation that drives young men and women like Tyler to end their own lives. Tyler failed to realize that nothing was wrong with him, that he wasn't the problem. The only problem lies with the people who treated him differently because he's gay. It's a damn shame that he didn't realize that before he jumped 200-some feet to his death. For that same reason, I issue a challenge to anyone listening. Come out in stark support of your gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender friends and family. Outreach starts with you, and it just might save a life. The least you can do is make it a little easier. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. Thank you for that, Evan. We'll revisit those topics at 45 after the hour. Here at Eye on the Triangle, we always like your feedback and opinions. You can reach the show by emailing publicaffairs at wknc.org or send us a tweet to WKNCEOT or WKNC881. We'll be right back after the break with Mark's new restaurant review and some sports talk. Welcome back to Eye on the Triangle. The time is now 725. Let's take a look at your weather forecast real quick. Earlier today, RDU broke a record. The high was 87 earlier, the old record of 85, so we shattered that. Second day in a row with record heat, but change is fortunately on the way. Tonight we're looking for a mostly cloudy night with a low of 59. Tomorrow will be a day of transition. We'll see increasing cloudiness with a slight chance of some showers. Our high will be up at 76, which will feel a good bit colder than today. Well, not outright cold. Wednesday night, that chance for showers increases just another notch, up to about 40% with a low of 57. On Thursday, showers are likely. Our high is now down into the 60s, 68. And then we'll start a clearing trend for Friday with mostly sunny skies, a high of 67. And the weekend at this point is looking really nice. Saturday, sunny, high 69 with lows in the lower 40s, pretty much where we should be for this time of year. And also a great weekend for the first weekend of the State Fair. Hopefully a lot of people will be able to enjoy that as long as the weather cooperates. Joining us now is Mark Herring with another restaurant review. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the author, not WKNC Student Media or NCSU. The author is not paid or otherwise compensated for his review, and WKNC does not endorse any specific establishment and takes no responsibility for what you do once you get there. How you doing, Mark? Pretty good. How you doing, John? All right, so what do you have for us tonight? All right, well, I have a little uh, story about a hot date I went on, but, um, well, all right, here we go. But let me give you a little bit of background. All right. So for those of you out there who have been listening to my little hunger trip manifestos weekly, it's clear that there are two recurrent obsessions that I routinely fall back on comfort food and street food. So let's talk about the latter. Street food is perhaps the most transcendental form of cooking out there. And no, I'm not talking about deep fried state fair Oreos. What I'm talking about is foreign street food, which is done so much better and with so much more creativity than the typical street food found in the United States. 
Enough with American exceptionalism, especially in a culinary sense. It's time to get over dirty water hot dogs and curly fries. So here's the thing. Good street food comes from the places where the average people can't afford to eat in a a restaurant. I'm talking about Vietnam, India, Central America, China, or the Middle East. But, But before I get lost on my little tangent, I want to return to my main point. We Americans are learning slowly. There is still hope out there. A while ago, I did a story about cutting-edge food trucks in Raleigh. Today, I want to talk about Buku, a restaurant in downtown Raleigh that's doing the implausible, serving global street food with gourmet gourmet execution and precision. Now, gourmet street food, it sounds more like an oxymoron than a viable business plan. However, it takes only one taste to convince the skeptics. Started by renowned chef William Doré, Buku... Buku serves up delicacies from the unsung unsung culinary capitals of the world. DeRay didn't skimp out either. Just looking at the menu is overwhelming. Do I want Indian, Malaysian, Caribbean? I don't recommend this restaurant to the indecisive. I didn't agonize over what I felt like ordering, so I went with two things that I hold dearly. Colombian arepas and empanadas. Arepas are more or less thick cornmeal pancakes that can be stuffed or topped with cheese and sauces, and they're a staple in the diet in the South American Andes. Despite the gourmet presentation of the arepas I had at Buku, they reminded me of the ones I've eaten at various Latino festivals, which is a good sign. I also ordered empanadas, which are stuffed meat pastries that come in all different forms and shapes from all over Latin America and Spain. These things are like little piñatas of goodness. The ones at Buku are stuffed with chicken and topped with habanero salsa. All I can say, me gustan. As a fan of all things spicy, food included, these empanadas really hit the spot, especially after a long day. Despite the not-so-fancy-inspired menu items, the restaurant itself is very classy. The dining room is ornately decorated and is similar to other high-end restaurants. Reservations are not too hard to come by, and they can be easily made through the restaurant's website. Regardless of the sophisticated and plush atmosphere, my check would not have indicated any type of pretension. With a hot date giving me company, it was quite manageable to keep the bill at around $30, which would be pretty tough to replicate at restaurants of the same caliber. So fellas, do take note. On a different note, I have some foodie news shout-outs to bring to your attention. On Thursday evening, Food Network star and genius author Alton Brown will be speaking at Quail Ridge Books to talk about his new book, Good Eats 2. Alton Brown is also the host of the Food Network show Good Eats. This event is free, and the big man will be there to sign books for his groupies. Even if you're not a groupie of Alton Brown, it should be a fun event to check out. Unlike many other personalities on the Food Network, Brown has has not sold himself out and actually knows what he's talking about. Sorry, Rachel Ray. For next week, I'll be giving my spiel on fall-inspired recipes. And no, candy corn won't be involved. If you have any recipe or cooking questions or are interested in accompanying me on a hot date for a future review, just contact us at EOT at WKNC.org. And in the subject line, just put something in like, Mark is a sexy beast, just so we can filter through the loads of fan mail we get. Until then, thanks for listening and have a delicious evening. Also, Mark, I wanted to add that our mailing address is WKNC 88.1 FM. Attention, uh, Eye on the Triangle, Campus Box 8607, 343 Witherspoon Student Center, Raleigh, North Carolina, 27695.
And we really do have to filter through the hate mail. I mean, the fan mail. <laughs> we got to step through it on our way to the mailbox. It's we, so We like thick. it when you let us know that we're listening or that you're listening. Yeah. I mean, of we, course. We always wonder. We don't even listen. No. All right. Well, I, sounds exciting. Thank you so much, Mark. Time for sports. From the sidelines on Eye on the Triangle. Your weekly update on athletic events. It's time once again for sports here on Eye on the Triangle. I'm joined by a friend of the show, Tyler Everett from Technician. Of course, more good news. Wolfpack back on track after this weekend. Yeah, a big bounce back win for the pack. Uh, a big start before the Virginia Tech loss. And then anytime you lose, some questions start to crop up, especially with Wolfpack fans who have seen the team struggle in recent years. You wondered maybe... Some flaws were revealed against Virginia Tech. It might turn into a spiral. That was not at all the case. State came out and really blew BC out. They jumped out to a big lead, which they've done almost every game this year, but they hung on. They put BC away. The game was really not in question at the 10-minute mark in the third quarter. That's when C.J. Wilson picked off a pass, took it to the house for a 34-10 lead. State added 10 more points before BC got a touchdown in garbage time against State's reserves. So a 44-17 win might have even not been as close as that score would indicate. It really was a one-sided affair. State scored on offense, defense, and special teams. An early block punt for a touchdown was the third block punt of the year, the second time State scored on one of those. So that was huge. Russell threw two quick touchdowns. State was up 24-3 early in the second quarter. Uh, BC answered with a touchdown. State answered with a field goal, 27-10 at the half. And then, like I said, State salted away in the second half. Really uh, really made a statement bouncing back and that the uh, Virginia Tech was a slip-up and this team's still, on, as John said, on the right track. One thing that concerned me looking at the Georgia Tech game, uh, as well as Cincinnati, is allowing some touchdowns in the fourth quarter. We didn't really see as much of that this time. Saw a no little, slacking off. Saw a little bit of that. That last touchdown, you obviously wouldn't like to see a 67-yard bomb from BC's quarterback, Mars Kavitra to Amadon. But that was against the reserves, as was the late touchdowns against Cincinnati were with the backups in. And the good thing about that is that, A, it's after the outcome has long since been settled, it's it's somewhat of a moot point in that it didn't have any income on the win-loss co- any impact on the win-loss column. And also, you know, when it's against your reserves, you can shrug that off a little more readily than you can when it's against your starters. Um, There's only one way for guys to learn whether they're ready or not, and that's to get out on the field. And if they're out on the field when they're not ready, they might get beat by starters looking to make a statement. You know, they're frustrated late in the game trying to get something going. That's not an easy position for those guys to be in, but they're going to learn from it. As a lot of people have pointed out, a symbolic win for Coach O'Brien. Yeah, a big win for him over his former team, B.C., is is clearly a little bit behind the Wolfpack football program right now. Like I said, Saturday wasn't close, and it was all the it was all that much more big for Tom O'Brien and NC State because the Pack had lost to BC the past three years. So to come out and beat them and beat them handily, that they dropped BC to I believe two and three overall now. Um, Boston College has a mess at the quarterback position. And on the other side of that coin, State's 5-1 and one with a chance to go to ECU, be 6-1 and one before the bye week, be bowl eligible with nearly half the season left when a lot of people thought this season would be a success if any bowl was, if the team qualified for any bowl. So um, a huge start and a huge contrast between what O'Brien left and where he is now. Yeah, BC 2-3, and three, fifth in the ACC. Atlantic, that is. So, so. Fifth in the six-team Atlantic. Right, and they're, they're facing... Florida State next time, so that's number 16. Uh, Florida State also in our future, but a a little sooner than Florida State, we've got ECU this weekend. 
a big game going to Greenville. That's a rivalry. Whether people think East Carolina means as much to this team as the Carolina game does, the fact is for these players, it's huge. A lot of these guys played in state. Nate Irving, Owen Spencer, guys like that are from this state. There's guys for ECU that are primarily from the state of North Carolina. Anytime you're playing against people you've known and played with or against for a long time, there's a ton of meaning there. With State being the heavy favorite on the road, ECU's going to take that to heart. Their fans are going to be going nuts. I think they haven't had a home game since they beat Memphis September 11th, so it's been a long time since Pirate fans have been able to cheer on their team at home. After three road games in a row, the Pirates are home, and everyone knows what kind of atmosphere there generally is associated with ECU football. Uh, mm-hmm. A big crowd down there promises to make Dowdy Ficklin uh, anything but a but a you know a safer and easy trip. Anything stayed out of pencil as a W. Um, no reason to do that. ECU's got a got a good program down there and a good fan base that'll make that game interesting. But I'm sure they'll bring in a few extra deputies. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. I'd imagine they'll have it plenty under control. But but as I said, anyone who's familiar with Greenville can attest to the nature of the folks down there and the energy they're going to bring to that stadium will not be very welcoming towards uh, Russell Wilson and the rest of the Wolfpack. So let's talk about uh, how ECU has done so far this season. Um, One thing has been very consistent, and that's not in their favor, points against. They have given up a lot of points. They've won some of those games anyway. Their opener against Tulsa was an absolute thriller. They won on a Hail Mary, one of the probably the best catches you'll see in college football this year, to pull that one out 51-49. But they gave up 49 points to Tulsa. The next week against Memphis, a little better. They won a little more comfortably, 49-27. to Then they actually jumped out to a lead against Virginia Tech. I believe they were either up 10 nothing, 17-3, something along those lines. They had a lead on the Hokies in the first half, just as NC State did. They ended up losing 49-27. The Virginia Tech offense caught fire. I believe ECU was still ahead in the third quarter, ended up losing by 22 at at 49-27. Uh, similar situation against North Carolina. I watched some of ECU Virginia Tech. I did not watch any of ECU North Carolina, but from what I understand, once again, they were right in it, if not ahead. In the second half, they faded down the stretch. They lost 42-17. A week ago against Southern Miss, I really didn't see any of this game or haven't read about it, to be honest. But they uh, they beat Tulsa 51-49 in the opener, you know, a, a real close high-scoring shootout win. They did the same thing against Southern Miss based on the score alone, 44-43. Obviously, that one was full of, full of scoring and, and, and some last-minute heroics for the Pirates. So they know how to get it done in close games, it would appear. So walk us through what you expect to see on Saturday. I think this is another game. I think last week against Boston College, NC State was the better team. They were in a position where if they played their best or close to it, and Boston College played their best as well. State was going to win. BC may not, or may or may not have played their best. State may or may not have. But the bottom line is State won easily. And I think this is a similar situation this week for all I said about ECU's talent. State's got more of it. Um, Russell Wilson's as good as anybody in the country right now. He's got a ton of receivers to throw to. The state defense is getting after people. They're creating turnovers. They caused three more against BC this past weekend. ECU... They're 3-0 in Conference USA, but they've lost to Virginia Tech. They've lost to North Carolina. Both those games were close for a while, but the bottom line was they faded down the stretch. They weren't on the level. They don't appear to be on the level of ACC opponents yet this year. And the pack, I feel like, has beaten better teams than ECU already. I'd argue that the majority of states' wins have come against teams that would probably beat ECU. Hard to say because they haven't played, but... I would definitely say State being the favorite. The way State's offense puts up points. Aside from Virginia Tech, of course. Yeah, besides the Hokies game. But State State puts up the points at a remarkable rate right now, 37.5 a game. ECU's given up, I believe, 42. 
do the math. State's got a great chance to put up a ton of points, and if the defense can keep teams like Cincinnati and Georgia Tech and Boston College quiet, I think they can keep ECU plenty quiet enough to where 50 points or you know a high score in the 40s is going to be more than enough. So we're cautiously, well, not even cautiously, we're optimistic, I'd say. Now let's look across the ACC uh, matchup this weekend with Miami and Florida State really kind of cast a tone on what's going on in the Coastal Division. Florida State made a heck of a statement. Um, that's a rivalry game. Them and Miami is as big as any rivalry in the ACC, if not the country. Those programs have fallen off a little bit. They're not what they once were, but that's still a big game. And for Florida State to go to Miami and beat Miami like they did, that was a huge win. Miami was 3-1, and one, the only loss being to Florida State. They had embarrassed Pittsburgh. Miami appeared to be a strong team, and Florida State came in there and embarrassed them. They ran all over them. The defense was pretty dominant. Again, a game that was – it's never over with a team like Miami, but Florida State had a substantial lead at halftime. They they held on to that lead. They even built on it. So a huge statement. Florida State's definitely the front runner in the Atlantic Division right now at 3-0 and with Maryland at 1-0 and 4-1 and and overall, but they haven't really played too many big teams. It, it, the jury's still out on Maryland. Maryland might go 5-1 and one in conference. They might only win you know one or two more games. Uh, a, t- a tough team to figure out right now, but most people have the Ace, have the Atlantic Division handicapped as a race between NC State and Florida State. NC- Florida State's only loss is to a top-10 Oklahoma team. They were embarrassing them, but that was week one. That was against a very strong Oklahoma team. So it'll be interesting to see how those two compete and whether Maryland makes themselves a third contender or if they fall out of the running. So we're looking ahead to potentially something epic here, here at home Thursday night, October 28th, to decide – you know, North Carolina State or Florida State being in charge of the Atlantic Division. Yeah, I, if State pretty much controls their destiny right now, obviously pretty much every team in the conference does that this young. Most teams, you know, if they win everything they've got, they're in great shape. But at 2-1 and one now with a win over Florida State, that would put State at 3-1 and one and Florida State at 3-1. and one. Um, it, Should State win out, they'd win the conference. They'd have the same uh, – should both teams win out after State after a State win over Florida State Thursday night a couple weeks from now, then – the same conference record both teams would have, but State would hold the tiebreaker and would therefore take the Atlantic Division. So uh, just a huge game against Florida State. Another team that looked like a big contender that would stand in State's way was Clemson. That's certainly still a talented team, but they're 0-2 in the conference right now. They're pretty much going to have to win out to have a chance to take the ACC. Uh, both their losses were really were pretty close games, both to Miami and to North Carolina. Coming up, they've got a huge game with Maryland this weekend. We talked about trying to find out what Maryland's got. We're going to know real soon because Clemson needs that game badly. If Maryland goes down there and takes it from them, A, it shows us Clemson's not the team we thought they were. B, it shows us Maryland's got something that a lot of people had no idea they had earlier in the season. So that would make that trip to College Park for the season finale a real daunting one for the Wolfpack. And then Clemson plays Georgia Tech after that. They get B.C., then they get us. So Clemson, over the next three weeks before we go down there, we're going to have a much better idea of the type of team we're seeing from Clemson. They almost beat an Auburn team that's in the top ten. So Clemson's got plenty of talent but haven't quite played up to that level yet. Their coach said as much after the game. I believe he used the word either humiliated or embarrassed or both. He was not happy with how his team played against Carolina. And with the talent they've got, you can bet they're going to get – I would expect them to get that ship righted and look more like the team people thought they would be before the season. So some inconsistent performance from Clemson. Big news coming down today for UNC. Yes, this whole scandal with the uh, potentially 
with the potential involvement of of agents and uh, that that whole scandal over there. On the cover of the next Sports Illustrated coming out, and this article is available online, I encourage anyone to go up there, whether they want to find out about UNC or just a really enlightening article, I thought, one of the more interesting reads I've come across in a long time. A former agent, John Lux, uh, has not been an agent since 2005 or 2006. He worked out in California for a while, and then he got with Gary Wishart, and essentially his story was one just telling of all the different players he paid off, some huge names, some guys that are NFL stars now, the interesting thing that ties into Carolina with this is for a, for a time, John Luck's partner was Gary Wishard, the agent who was associated with former North Carolina defensive line coach John Blake. He talked about uh, they considered Blake his partner. They didn't say this while he was at Carolina, but uh, you know, reading between the lines, it doesn't take a genius. It, it, it's pretty. It's almost plain as day that John Blake was, like I said, they referred. Um, John Lux and Gary Wishard referred to John Blake as a partner of theirs. He was right in their scheme with agents and, and trying to land players before they went pro. And for Butch Davis to keep saying he had no idea about John Blake, maybe that's true, but this just makes him look worse. Um, John Blake was somebody with, an, with a reputation for being connected to agents for a long time before he got to Carolina, while he was at Carolina. He comes to Carolina, all of a sudden they've got much better recruits. For Bush Davis to say he didn't know any better either makes him look like a liar or like a pitiful coach with no grip on his program. So it will be interesting to see just how much further this perpetuates the situation at Carolina, how much this story and the aftermath of it is going to make things even worse over there in Chapel Hill, at least as far as as what's going to happen with Butch Davis and with that program, what the NCAA is going to say about it. Um, the the it's kind of the opposite of the rich keep getting richer over there. It seems like every other day another big story comes out that's just even more damning of UNC and and the uh, potential involvement they've had with agents. Well, even with the losses, it looks like they've put out a performance in weeks past that makes it seem like they're not going to have much trouble with Virginia this weekend. Yeah, UNC's reeled off three in a row despite being undermanned. They beat Rutgers in a close game. We talked about their game with ECU. They pulled that out. They had a close game against Clemson. Uh, not Not... Not a game that went down to the wire completely, but a game that was still up in the air in the fourth quarter. Carolina pulled it out, and against a quality team like Clemson, um, Carolina's sitting, considering everything off the field, 3-2 and two and 1-1 one and one is better than what I thought they'd be. They're missing three of their best players. They're at Virginia this weekend. That's a team that's given the heels fits over the years, but Carolina probably will be favored in that game, in that game. and then at Miami will be no easy task. The Hurricanes will probably take out the... Uh, their uh, frustration over what Florida State did to them on the next couple of opponents. So that trip to Miami will be no, will be a tough one for the Heels. A walk in the park. So what else do we see going on back here with Wolfpack Sports? Uh, well, as excited as everybody, as everybody is about football, um, some folks might be forgetting how close basketball is around the corner. The uh, – Annual red-white game this year is actually being called the Red Rally. It's going to be a big event. They're going to combine the men's team with the women's team with so much anticipation for the uh, upcoming basketball seasons. Women's had a strong finish last year, and everybody's heard about the men's. C.J. Leslie, Ryan Harrell, Lorenzo Brown, three of the most commonly spoken names around Wolfpack campus these days are finally here. This will be fans' first glimpse at them. The official event won't start till 7, but doors will be open at 5. So fans very well might need to get there early. Uh, a number of things in addition to just the scrimmage. The women's team is going to be introduced. Coach Kelly Harper is going to address the crowd. The women's basketball team is going to do some drills for the for the fans at Reynolds. 
Then the men's team is going to be introduced. Coach Lowe will address the crowd. There's actually going to be a dance contest between the men's basketball team and the women's basketball team. That promises to be interesting. There will be a hot shot competition and then a dunk contest and a skills challenge. So a number of, of things going on there Saturday night in addition to the scrimmage, the men's inter-squad scrimmage, which will start at 8.30. The event will be announced by former Wolfpack basketball star Julius Hodge along with Mark Thomas, a local radio personality on 99.9 The Fan. He is a state graduate, played football here, so him and Julius will be on the mics. Um, They're sure to bring some energy and uh, a lift to an event that in past years has not been exactly something fans swarmed over on a Friday night with basketball season. Past couple basketball seasons, there wasn't a ton of anticipation. There was nowhere near this kind of a of an ordeal being put together just for the red-white scrimmage. So kind of a sign that State's arriving, that the hype is here, that, that they've got one of these kind of marquee preseason scrimmage events. Well, hey, it's an exciting time to be here with Wolfpack as a student. A lot going on. Definitely, to say the least. Well, you'll be back here next time to talk about it. Thank you for coming in, Tyler. Yes, as always. Thank you guys for listening. The time is now 7.48 here on Eye on the Triangle. I'm joined in the studio by Chris and Evan and Mark. And uh, during sports, somebody mentioned lemurs. I don't know if that's what we're going to talk about for the next 13 minutes, but if you don't want to hear us talking about it, you can influence the conversation. You can get in touch with us through email, publicaffairswknc.org, or we have a presence on Twitter, WKNCEOT or WKNC881. You know, it doesn't even really have to be about the show we're doing right now. You know, you can do requests anytime on Twitter. So, next week's program, also going to be a little political in nature, uh, we're going to be profiling the 16th district of the North Carolina Senate and the candidates that are running in that race. And so that's what you have look, to look forward to next Tuesday. Next Tuesday, we'll also be talking about State well, the, Fair. We'll have some State Fair stories uh, next Tuesday and the following Tuesday. We'll have our correspondents out there. Maybe not live. It might be a bit noisy. Evan? Just to clarify, the 16th district is yes. the district that covers NC State. Thank right. you. That's correct. That's well, why most it's of importance. NC State. I think yes. most of NC yes. State mm-hmm. because we're such a colossus. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, well, we also are the capital city. The gerrymandering is really uh, very <laughs> important right. to that. Um, <laughs> Having looked at the maps, though, for the House and Senate districts here in North Carolina, they're not nearly as bad as the U.S. congressional districts yeah, here in North Carolina. Those are pretty jaunty. Yeah. The I-85 corridor. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, also, I have to mention something else coming up this Friday, October 15th. There will be a fr- uh, there will be a little bit of a concert over on uh, Harris Field, which is located directly outside of our fair Witherspoon, although we do broadcast from the top of Daniel Harvey Hill Library at 25,000 watts. Uh, Embarrassing Fruits and Birds, Air- Birds and Arrows will be playing at 6.30 p.m. Um, on Harris Field. We have a sweet stage. There will be free stuff, uh, food, etc. Uh, it will be lots of fun. Uh, and Birds and Arrows, Embarrassing Fruits are awesome. So if you want to come see some great live music for free with free food, then you should come to NC State. At Harris Field on Friday. Bring a blanket. There's no chairs. That's our community calendar right there. That is all we'll you need We'll call that the community calendar segment and a bit of station promotion in there. I would not call it shameless, though, because it's going to be a great time. Yeah, it's going to be a blast. I hope you guys all come. <laughs> I, uh, I worked hard on this one. Anyways, so moving right along, we also wanted to talk about uh, some other things that have been going on uh, 
in the area. I know we've had a political show this week, and next week we'll also have a political tilt to it. Um, and 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 before the show started, we were talking a little bit about voter apathy. Um, it seems like every time, even even the guy who was running for Senate of the state of North Carolina has only voted one time, and it was in a primary ever. What's that what about? Did you hear his justification? That nobody he, else votes, so I shouldn't either. That's basically what I heard. Well, I think he also said that I've been getting crappy candidates thrown at me for years, and so I vote just for was, the best one. Pick the best one. Still vote. It's not always possible. Yeah, it and it's possible. Well, and also you're effectively pros versus cost-benefit yeah. analysis. What's the deal? Um, I mean, I think that was a really bad Seinfeld impression, by the way. In case anyone was curious as to where I was going with that. Um, oh, exactly. Okay. Um, but basically, I think that it's very frustrating to me as an avid political person. That people don't vote, and then they complain. And it's like, if you didn't vote, you can't complain, so just sit down and be quiet. Because I don't want to hear about how you are so worked up about whatever if you didn't even bother walking to your polling station, registering to vote. It takes like 20 seconds to like go in there and just, just vote straight ticket. I don't care. The fact that you voted makes all the difference, and that it frustrates me a lot that that doesn't happen um, in a timely fashion. Well, and it's also really interesting because, I mean, for the most part... We all pay taxes or, you know, even as college students, I work over the summer, I pay taxes. So, you know, I have a stake in that sort of stuff. You know, even as college students, the state is paying for the majority of our education. And, you know, there's a lot of policy behind that. And it's a little silly that people really aren't aware of, you know, how much they can influence the the decision making just by voting. Um, But... The thing is, if people – I was talking about this in my political science class today. If people aren't really well-informed, is it even necessary for them? Should they even vote? I mean it's an issue to for people that you know they're just going to put someone's name down. They could, they could definitely screw up the democratic process. I mean in, in a – that's a, a strange case, but what do you guys think about that? You know, should people – who aren't even informed about the issues should is it all right that they're apathetic what do you think well it sort of puts right. our job in context to inform people well yeah which that hopefully i think we as will a do. citizen of the united states i i find it incumbent upon myself to learn about who's on the ballot before i go in and vote let's well, do a little ballot quiz okay who's running for senate it's actually on my desktop well, I know that. It's Elaine Marshall and Richard Burr and our guest earlier today, Mr. Beidler. Who was a great guest, by the way. He was really good to talk to. I think he's listening now. Thanks for listening. Um, know, the actual State Board of Elections candidate list is 112 pages long PDF, but there are so many resources available on the State and County Board of Elections websites that you can use to get informed about the races. Everything from candidate filings to finding out more about candidates and their history. But Okay, there are three House districts that serve Wake County. And actually, the intersection of the three is not far away. They all meet at uh, Jones Franklin Road and 440. We're talking Around about 40. Yeah. U.S. U.S. House districts. The second House district uh, occupies a very small area of Wake County, but it does include the actual main campus of NC State, extending out eastward through Garner, and then most of it is out east uh, through Smithfield and Wilson, etc. That is Bob Etheridge and Renee Elmers, uh. and Tom Rose, the Libertarian. Bob Etheridge, of course, the incumbent Democrat. Fourth district, 
David Price, the incumbent Democrat, and B.J. Lawson, the Republican challenger. Nothing to add about the 4th District? Okay. And then, of course, there's the 13th District, which is um, it's the eastern side of White County, I believe. Uh, Brad Miller, Democrat, incumbent, and Republican challenger Bill Randall. They, we, hey, uh, we're talking about I mean, the ballot. Well, I mean, yeah, and that's the thing. Uh, even Even us... The ones who say they're educated about the candidates really don't have a whole lot to add. I mean, I had a lot to add about Renee Elmer's a few weeks ago. That is true. <laughs> and she was a real piece of you work. You know what? Harpy. Will, um, I, I think like the broader, the broader thought is, and, and, and this is, this is so easy is that every, every candidate that is running right now, is in a little booklet, and it's sent to every household in Wake County. Did you get yours? The State Board of Elections does send around a little pamphlet. I have. Um, the interesting thing is that there are so many people How on the you ballot, go? you're not even able to get informed about all the races, even somebody that's just totally devoted to finding out. Uh, we have things like soil and water conservation districts and district court judges. By the way, Jenna Austin Wadsworth is running for soil conservator, and she's an NC State student. That's fascinating, and perhaps somebody we'd like to talk to in the future. The point is, somebody could win statewide office with only a few hundred or a few thousand people that actually know anything important about what the race is. Isn't that an interesting thought? Let's talk about what's important to know. About soil and water conservators? Well, not so, not necessarily just soil and water. Or, or let's say, what, okay, let's say Sheriff of Wake County. What is there important? Or what what should I know about the, the platforms of the potential sh- candidate for sheriff that I'm planning on voting for? Depends on what the difference between the two is. First you know, of all, I think it's they, a little bit ridiculous. They do have party identification. Sheriffs here. run under party identification. Yeah, it's, yes, um, they do. Jay Willis. Jay Willis. Sills. Sorry, I, I read that as Sillis and stopped myself, and I'm glad I did. Uh, the uh, Democratic candidate and Donald Harrison Republican. Does he have a background in law enforcement? See, that would be important to know. And I could find out using the voter registration guide who the incumbent is. And the incumbent is Donald Harrison Republican. By the way, you can also find out many things about voter registration by going to sboe.state.nc.us. You can look up where your voting place is. You can register or you can find out information about registering. You can look up any campaign report and you can figure out the uh, like right here on the top voter registration. As of 10-2-2010, there are 2,760,000 Democrats, 195,000,000, excuse me, 1,952,000 1,952,000 Republicans and 9,000 Libertarians. So somebody's cooking the books if there are 195 million Republicans in North Carolina. Yes, that would be a lie, I think. Actually, because there's only like 19 million people in the state of North Carolina. So a little blown out of proportion. Also, one-third of the United States population. So this is fun. Election night, Tuesday night, November 2nd, my birthday. It's also going to be Eye on the Triangle. We have a show on Tuesday night. Ooh. So that's another opportunity we'll have to talk about these races and hopefully some of the results. Because voting does close it. I see that's something I could check. When does voting stop on that Tuesday? I'll be very interested in following the, the results out of the 2nd District. That's my home district, by the way, that evening because mm-hmm. I have such a vested interest in seeing Renee Elmer's the Tea Party candidate. Go down in flames. Dude, tea party. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Again, I, I I think I should remind our listeners that the views expressed herein are not necessarily the views of WKNC or any of its employees. They're mine. They're I, mine. I, I hope that viewpoint is implicit, but you know we have to do it anyways <laughs> so as not to defame people. So they become less or, famous? Or jeopardize our reputation as an impartial interview. Yeah, 
body. Totally. Anyway, you know, that brings us to the end of the hour. It is yes, it does. 7.59. So as always, I'd like to thank our guests who participated tonight. Uh, Tyler with sports and uh, Mike Beitler, Libertarian candidate for United States. Pleasure uh, talking to him. Absolutely. So remember that if you want to get in touch with the program, we like hearing from you. And that could be a story idea, a complaint or an issue. Uh, we're not as good as the TV problem solvers. But we can get something out into the open for you, whether it's here on campus or out in the community. Keep in touch with Twitter, WKNCEOT or WKNC881, public affairs at WKNC.org. We're on Facebook, Eye on the Triangle, 919-628-0869, voicemail feedback line. And remember, you can subscribe to the podcast of this program through iTunes. Search for EOT. Tonight's show will be available on Thursday. Big thanks to our guests and for my producer, Chris Chaffee, our polemic freedom fighter, Evan Garris, correspondents Jacob Downey, Mason Morris, and Tom Anderson, sportscasters Tyler Everett and Taylor Barber, master chef Mark Herring. I'm your host and public affairs director, John Boyer. Have a great night and join us next time for more Eye on the Triangle. Stay tuned for After Hours.